Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a woman known uh, known by a couple of names, actually. She was Irene of Athens, probably her best-known moniker. Uh, Irene Sarantipacana. Sarantipacana? I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a very long word. Um, also known as that empress what gouged her own son's eyes out, which is, you know, a highlight of the story we'll come to. What if you call her, however, uh, this woman, she did not muck around when it came to ruling over, of course, one of the most powerful and important empires on the face of the earth, the Byzantine Empire. Um, this topic was a recommendation from alert listener Stanislav, who got in touch to suggest that I have a read about the life and times of Irene. So thanks so much, Stan. Good on you, mate. Very interesting topic indeed. Um, Irene, she came to power after the death of her husband in 17, uh, in 17, wow, no, 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 we're going, I'm a thousand years too late, in 780 CE, and uh, I tell you what, she didn't waste the opportunity to, uh, to stamp her name into the history books with, uh, with you know, with, with a good deal of enthusiasm here. She was one of the only women to ever rule the Byzantine Empire in her own right, um, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire, of course. Uh, and I'll tell you what, she fought both tooth and nail to gain and hold on to this power wherever she could find it. Um, this involved, you know, the aforementioned... Uh, eye-gouging business, which was, you know, a little much, but uh, there's plenty of other good stuff. There's torture, scourging, you know, forced head shaving, there's tongues being cut out and and noses being cut off and all all sorts of really good stuff. There was also, you know, I do have to say a lot of much more boring history stuff about iconoclasts and iconophiles, which unfortunately we do have to get across as well, but we'll keep the boring history nonsense to a minimum and focus on, the, you know, all all the good bits, the torture and, and, and the dismemberment, all that sort of good stuff, so don't worry about that. Now, her position as a female ruler, obviously caused some interesting wrinkles in the politics of the time uh, throughout, actually, the European Middle Ages there towards the end, which uh, which we'll get to uh, as well. But as you can imagine, there's a lot to get across today, so let's not waste any more time. We'll get straight to it, straight into the story of old mate Irene and find out what just what she was all about. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 750s here, 750-something CE. Uh, when Irene was born in Athens. Now, we don't know exactly for sure uh, when this was. We don't know the exact year. Best guess is sometime between 750 and 755. But in any case, whenever, you know, whichever year that might have been that she'd been born, she's born into uh, into the wealthy and influential Sarantapechos family. Sarantapechos, I don't know how to pronounce it. Sarantapechos. Um, so, you know, a little, little silver spoon in her mouth there, born into this noble family, no worries. But unfortunately... Poor old Irene, Irene, she was orphaned at a young age, and, and she was then taken in by her uncle, or maybe he was her cousin, we're not 100% sure, a bloke whose name was Constantine. Now, there are going to be a lot of Constantines in this episode, I'll tell you now, but don't bother remembering this one because he's you know, a very, very minor character. We only need a sort of small bit part actor for, for this bloke in the screen adaptation, so, uh, so don't worry too much. You know, he's not very important. Anyway... Uncle slash cousin Constantine is a big knob in the structure of the of the Byzantine Empire. He's in charge of Athens. He's a patrician. He, you know, big important politician fellow. He went on to become a strategos, a you know, general of Athens, whatever else they like that. And he's looking after Irene. He's raising her until 768, when something very odd indeed takes place. We are still struggling today to explain why this whole affair ended up going the way that it did in 768. But uh, here's what we know for sure, right? 
On the 1st of November in this year, Irene was brought to Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, of course. These, day, uh, these days it's known as Istanbul. Uh, it's a Turkish city. But back in, there, uh, back, back in those days it was called Constantinople and it was Greek rather than Turkish. Anyway, she heads off to Constantinople, as I say, towards the end of 768. And for some reason, on the 17th of December, she ends up marrying... Leo IV, the heir, or Leo at this stage, not the fourth yet, Leo, this bloke, the heir to the Byzantine Empire, the, the, the bloke who would go on to become Leo IV, the emperor. Now, the empire is ruled at this stage by his dad, a bloke whose name is, you guessed it, Constantine. He's Constantine V. Bloody love that name they did back then. And for whatever reason, Constantine V, he decides that Irene is the perfect wife for his son and heir. The reason this is so weird is that there's no suitable explanation for why she was chosen as Leo's bride. Marriages at this time and at that level, they were very rarely about, you know, love or emotional bonds or anything else like that. They were much more about shoring up political connections or military alliances with other powerful, you know, political forces or military forces around the world there. So while Irene is, you know, a Greek noble, no worries, she doesn't come with half a kingdom or, you know, an army at her side or anything else like that. Some historians propose that Leo IV held a bride show and then picked Irene from, you know, all of these eligible bachelorettes. Welcome to the, to the new season of the bloody Byzantine bachelor, mate. But there's no, there's no evidence for this, so it's just speculation. That sort of thing had never happened before. And while, you know, it's not impossible, it seems pretty unlikely. Although, think of the money that they bloody left on the table. They're not turning that into a TV show all the way back then. They'd be rolling in it. Anyway... The other reason the marriage is an odd one is because Irene's political views are completely at odds with her new husband's, and more importantly, her father-in-law's. Constantine V was an incredibly zealous iconoclast, and he instilled this philosophy into his son Leo as best he could, who then went and married an iconophile in Irene. But you're probably asking, what is all this icono nonsense? Here become the boring bits. You can, you know, just kind of tune out for a few minutes if you're just in it for the blood and the guts and the eye gouging here. We've talked a little bit about iconoclasm on Half House History before. It came into the story of the 80 Years War, you'll remember. And broadly speaking, you know, the, the same themes are at, at, at play here. This is well before the Reformation and Protestantism, of course. But even back during the days of the Byzantine Empire, there were still those who sought to outlaw and punish the worship of icons, you know, idols, statues, monuments, religious pictures, that sort of thing. The thing you know, the thing you find in your, in, your, in your Catholic grandma's house, that sort of stuff, you know. Back then, the divisions between Christian denominations were very, very different to what they are now, of course, but it's safe to say that being a Christian in Rome in the 8th century, the, the, the seat of the iconophilic papacy, was very, very different. It, was, it wasn't the same at all as being a Christian in the iconoclastic Byzantine Empire under Constantine V. The worship of icons is one of the greatest sources of tension between Constantinople and Rome because it was banned in Constantinople. You, you, know, you get punished. You get all sorts of nasty things happen in Constantinople if you're, uh, if you, you know, if you're going about bloody iconophiling. Obviously, but in Rome, you know, the Pope, he bloody loves his icons, doesn't he? Doesn't, even today, Catholics still mad about their little statues and their pictures and whatever else. But back during Irene's time, you know, as I say, that sort of thinking gets you in big trouble with the likes of Constantine uh, V the, uh, the there in Constantinople. Seems very silly. All of this trouble over, you know, little statues of Mary and the weird picture of Jesus with the heart and the thorns. It, it really does seem very, very silly. But hey, you know, welcome, welcome to religious conflict, where, you know, where people fight with and kill each other over the, the correct way to have an imag imaginary friend. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense at the best of times. Anyway, despite her iconophilic tendencies, Irene becomes the wife of Leo IV, and the two of them, they have a little kid together in early 771, who they name. You'll, ne you'll never guess what they name this little kid. Of course, they name him 
Constantine. This kid would go on to become Constantine the sixth later on, so we'll stick with that name for the time being so as not to confuse things further with his grandpa. Well, actually, you know, maybe we don't need to worry about confusing things because just four years later in 775, Constantine the fifth, Irene's father-in-law, he carks it. And so we're down to just one relevant Constantine, uh, Constantine now, Irene's son. So as a result of this death, of course, Leo, he becomes the emperor, Leo the fourth, and now Irene is the empress consort with the death of her father-in-law and her influence on the young emperor is immediately apparent. I mentioned before how Constantine V, the father-in-law, was a militant iconoclast and how he did everything that he could to make sure his son followed in these footsteps. Well, it turns out that young Leo IV, emperor at just 25 years of age, decided to take a slightly different path, at least initially here. For the first five years of his rule, Irene seems to have been able to influence him into being much more moderate when it came to, you know, persecuting and punishing iconophiles, monasteries once again began to flourish. It even got to the point where in seven uh, in 780, when the Patriarch of Constantinople died, you know, basically sort of big important archbishop, archbishop sort of, the, you know, the, the head of the uh, of the of the Eastern uh, Eastern Christian Church there. Leo named the successor as someone with known iconophile sympathies here. This is this. I mean, this is huge. It, it sounds very boring and sort of, you know, I'm tr- like I'm trying to make something exciting out of yeah, but, but which. It, Kind of is, but still, you know, it's, it, it was it, it did mark a pretty a pretty significant turning point in, in the overall religious you know religious policy the the, the to- religious tolerance of the time here. But uh, because of Irene and her influence on Leo, there's this gradual push towards you know more religious tolerance, helping along uh, helped along by Irene, of course. But it all came crashing down in 780. An 11th century historian named George Kedronos, right? He tells a story as to why, and while we're not 100 percent certain that it's true. The result of this, of the you know, the, the sort of end point was definitely, you know, it's definitely where we ended up here. So here's the story anyway, for your, for, you know, for your consideration, for your enjoyment here. It goes, the story goes that one day Leo found two icons hidden, hidden under Irene's pillow, like little buddy, you know, teddy bears that you're hiding from someone. Amazing here. Anyway, he blows his stack. He absolutely cracks it with Irene, he does, and he orders an investigation to find out how and why those icons were there. Now, Irene, she protested her innocence. She said she didn't know how they got there, but when Leo found those that he thought were responsible for bringing the icons to Irene, he had them tortured. He then cracked down on iconophiles everywhere, even in his own court. Plenty of noble Byzantines were arrested, they were tortured, they were scourged, and they were even shaved. This was called tonsuring someone. Imagine, uh, imagine Friar Tuck from Robin Hood, you know, where they just sort of, sort of shave the top of your head there. That's what their duty was supposed to be, a, you know, a punishment of, of humiliation. I wonder how they'd... I always, I always wondered how they'd, they'd tonsure a bald bloke. They'd have to, you know, bloody stick hair onto him first and then shave it off. But this was obviously, you know, quite a quite a significant punishment for someone. You walk around with a bloody bald head, they're like, that's not a good look. Anyway, the other thing that came to this whole affair was a complete breakdown in relations between Leo and Irene. Leo said that he'd never shag her again and seems to have stuck to his word after this. So now he's cranky and he's blue balled himself. What a bloody idiot he is, mate. But look, as I say, we're not 100% sure if this is exactly how it went, but it's certain that in 780, for whatever reason, Leo reversed his initial policy of religious religious tolerance and iconophiles, and up and down the empire, iconophiles were facing persecution once again. Whether it's because he found these uh, these icons, you know, hidden under the pillow, whether it's a different reason entirely, whatever it is, all of a sudden, iconophiles are in hot water in the Byzantine Empire once again. However... This crackdown didn't last very long at all, and for a very good reason. It was over before the end of 780 for the very simple reason that uh, Leo went ahead and died. (laughs) He just went ahead and bloody died before the end of the year. And this meant that young Constantine VI became emperor, 
technically at least. Because he was only nine years old, however, you can guess who was actually large and in charge. At this point, it was, of course, our mate Irene. She seized the chance to take power and she was proclaimed the regent for her son. And as I mentioned before, she did not muck around when it came to securing her grip on power. Check this out. Firstly, she went around talking trash about her dead husband, trying to undermine his legacy, saying that he died of a curse brought on by sacrilege and all sorts of other stuff, tarnishing his name, tarnishing his memory uh, in an attempt to make herself look a lot better. Then, when a group of Byzantine nobles were exposed for having organised a conspiracy to oust her from power, my goodness me, she was not happy at all. These blokes, they were high-level dignitaries. They had sought to replace Irene and Constantine VI with Leo IV's half-brother, Nikephorus, right? And Irene found out about this and immediately had these conspirators. Remember, high-ranking nobles, all of them. She had them scourged, tonsured, and then exiled just like that. She didn't muck around. Bloody get the whip out, get the shaving cream, get the uh, get the razor blade, and hop on, your bo- hop on your boat and off you go, you bald bastards. What's more? recognizing that Nikephoros was a, was a potential threat to her rule as, a, you know, as he was a claimant to this imperial throne, the half-brother of the sitting emperor, she forced him and his four brothers, just for good measure, to become priests. This meant that they were effectively removed from contention as potential rulers being ordained as priests. You couldn't ascend uh, to the throne as a priest. Uh, And by the way, I will mention, these blokes probably got off pretty bloody lightly in that regard because the usual methods of disqualifying someone from a ruling position in the Byzantine Empire were much more brutal. The Byzantines, this is very strange here, but the Byzantines firmly believed and rigidly enforced that anyone with significant disfigurement was unable to rule. So as a result, if you ever wanted to protect, prevent someone from taking the throne, in, in you know, ever, in, in for the rest of their lives, you just needed to chop off their ears or their nose or blind them or, or maybe, you know, ampute- amputate a limb for good measure. There are countless examples of people having their noses cut off, their tongues ripped out, their hands amputated, or even from the 9th century onwards, being, uh, being castrated, right? And this is, of course, in addition to the classic blinding that the Byzantines are so famous for. Uh, and all of these were usually used as punishments for people who attempted to rebel against or overthrow a ruler, or conversely, used on an overthrown ruler once a, a you know a coup was successful, so they couldn't reclaim their throne. Although a bloke named Justinian II did manage to become emperor again after being overthrown and having his nose chopped off. He wore a little metal prosthetic, just like old mate Tycho Brahe there. But apart from that, generally speaking, if you if you you know you you'd be deliberately mutilated uh, to pre- to be prevented from from taking the throne, which is a super weird you know super weird thing to prevent people you know, to, to do that sort of thing. But, you know, whatever, it worked for the Byzantines or so whatever. Anyway, with this, th- this threat dealt with uh, for now that, you know, Nikephorus and his brothers taken care of, Irene continued to solidify her power as the Empress Regent. Now, because Leo's family were none too pleased about this whole, you know, ordainment and banishment business, because obviously, you know, Leo's half-brother, Nikephorus, is, you know, being badly treated here by Irene, Irene offered, you know, for, for Leo's sister to make amends, uh, for, to, he, she offered Leo's sister Anthusa uh, to join her as a co-regent. While Anthusa ended up turning down the offer, it helped smooth some ruffled feathers and, you know, demonstrated Irene's sort of political uh, political cleverness there. But as time went on, and as Constantine VI grew up, it became increasingly clear who was really in charge here. It became very, very clear that Irene was was more or less single-handedly running the empire. She knew her position, however, was a potentially fragile one, as, by, as, you know, as, as, as typically Byzantine women in power tended not to stick around for very long. 
Uh, for example, a previous regent, Empress Martina, hadn't even lasted a year before her tongue was ripped out, her three sons had their noses chopped off, and they were all castrated for good measure uh, before everyone, you know, before the lot of them were exiled. Yeah. So Irene, she did everything that she could to legitimise and solidify her position as empress, as you, as you can imagine, because obviously, you know, she didn't want her bloody schnoz chopped off, which uh, I think we can all we can all agree is probably not the best thing to have happened to you. Anyway. To do this, Irene, she uh, she did things like she'd struck coins that depicted her and Constantine the Sixth as co-rulers, uh, not with her as the regent, uh, and put her name on the front of these coins, and Constantine's was was kept on the back, sort of you know out of the way a little bit there. Um, and she also sought other ways to strengthen her political power, seeking out a marriage between Constantine the Sixth and uh, one of Charlemagne's daughters. Now, this engagement fell through even after Irene had sent a tutor to the Franks to teach this young princess Greek, but it showed that Irene was very serious about expanding her power and her influence. Another way she tried to shore up her position was by bringing Constantinople closer to Rome. Obviously not, not in a literal sense, that would have been quite a bloody undertaking, floating a huge great city you know, down the Bosporus and uh, through the Dardanelles and uh, across the Mediterranean. Um, but she... Like those in the papacy in Rome, she was an iconophile, of course, and she tried. She used this to try to foster a closer connection between the two powers. Again, no doubt to strengthen her own position now with the backing of the papacy, the Pope, and 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 you know, and Rome, of course. Here, however, despite and perhaps because of this move that she made to uh, you know to, to again further the iconophile uh, cause here. Irene had plenty of enemies that she had to contend with, and the fires of rebellion were smouldering away behind the scenes. At one point, a bloke named Elpidius, the leader of Sicily, he led an uprising against the Byzantines, and Irene responded by deploying a fleet of ships to crush the rebellion. And even without a Death Star, she was able to do it successfully, but Elpidius himself fled to the Abbasid Caliphate in northern Africa, which was very bad news for Irene, as it wasn't long after this that the Abbasid Caliphate itself launched an invasion of the Byzantine Empire. Now, some of her generals then defected to the Abbasids. Irene was forced to sue for peace prematurely, and she agreed to pay enormous sums of money as tribute to prevent their continued attacks. There was also uh, an ongoing war, a war that went for centuries against uh, the Bulgars up towards the north, you know, where to, obviously to modern-day uh, Bulgaria is there like that, and there were constant incursions and skirmishes and battles going on there as well. So Irene's got her hands full taking care of, you know, all these external political issues, but she did her best, and she did a bloody good job of well of keeping the empire well and truly together here, while still pushing an agenda of internal political reform, particularly, as you might have guessed, when it came to iconoclasm, right? Perhaps the most important part of Irene's legacy, and definitely one of the most boring parts of it anyway, was the Seventh Ecumenical Council, also known as the Second Council of Nicaea. At this council, Irene oversaw the restoration of the venerations of icons throughout Christendom, basically. This council effectively ended iconoclasm, although it would return later in history in various forms, of course, not only the 80 years war, but plenty of other places there like that. But this was a huge accomplishment for Irene, of course, and it helped to unify the Eastern Christian Church with Rome. And so now Irene, she's got Rome on side as a major ally, which was obviously excellent, right? And she's she's achieved you know something that, while being, you know, pretty bloody boring because they weren't what blood, blood and guts and eye gouging it was still an enormously important uh, shift in, in in the political and religious philosophy of the time however it wasn't long after this council that a new threat to Irene's power emerged despite the fact she's kicking goals with both feet here there and everywhere a new shadow rose over her capacity to rule and lead the Byzantine Empire because young Constantine the sixth was growing up 
and becoming less and less tolerant of his mum's ironclad grip on power here. I mean, she was technically wielding this power in his in her son's name, but really, you know, on, on, a, on a practical, on a, on a logistical level, she was the one in charge. So Constantine the Sixth, he is plotting to remove his mother from power, but of course, she is equal to his tricks and repressed every single attempt that he made to free himself from her power and influence. And after one failed plot, Irene actually attempted to change the law so that Byzantines would swear loyalty to her personally rather than to you know to her and her son. And she attempted to gain official recognition as the empress in her own right to, uh, you know, to further sideline the political aspirations of Constantine VI. However, this backfired. This proved to be a step too far because as she attempted to seize power here in 790, people rose in open rebellion for the sake of Constantine VI. And with a large military backing, he was finally proclaimed emperor that same year, emperor in his own right, and Irene was sidelined as co-ruler and regent. But here's the good part. Here's the good part. Just when you run into an ex and they've got like ugly and, you know, they, they look like they're in a really bad spot. So you feel like you got out at the, at the right time. You, you did pretty well here. This is exactly what, what happens once Constantine VI is in, in, in charge. Because Constantine VI was a bloody terrible emperor. He was completely incapable. He was completely incompetent. He lost, he lost battles all over the place trying to defend the borders of the empire. He mismanaged, he mismanaged the empire's finances and military. He generally just made a huge idiot of, idiot of himself here. In 792, Constantine VI, he lost a major battle against the Bulgarians or the Bulgars, and he was forced to make a shame-faced retreat to Constantinople. And, and this prompted prompt him to realise, he realised his position was completely untenable. He couldn't do it alone. He, he needed his mum to actually help him out. He, imagine this crawling back to, you know, not only the previous ruler of the empire, but also your mum, right? And said, listen, sorry, sorry, mum, old mate. Will you, will you come back and join me as co-ruler? Because I really, I really just can't do it without you, eh? So Irene, obviously, you know, she was happy enough to plonk her ass back down onto the imperial throne, or, or half of it anyway. This actually caused another crisis, her coming back into the fold. Remember Nikephorus, the half-brother of Leo IV? He was fuming at this whole affair, his nephew being incompetent, his sister-in-law back in charge, you know, ordained priest or not, not this bloke, he's, he's, had, an, he's, had, a, he's had a gutful, he's, and he's had, he, he decides he's actually going to do something about it. Nikephorus, he still had a lot of allies, still had a lot of connections in the Byzantine military, despite being exiled, despite being a priest. And so with a bit of political wheeling and dealing, he managed to gain enough support to proclaim himself emperor, right, and make a bid for the throne. But this campaign was extremely short-lived, however. Nikephorus and his brothers were once again arrested, and this time they did not get off lightly. The brothers all had their tongues cut out, pretty gross, while Nikephorus himself had his eyes gouged out, double gross, and they, they were exiled once again, but because they didn't stop causing trouble, even after the tongues and the eyes have come out there, they, they, they were still agitating and, you know, still making, making a nuisance of themselves. So they kept being exiled further and further away from Constantinople so people would stop trying to proclaim Nikephorus as the emperor there. Uh, they later died in obscurity on some island in the, you know, off the, off the coast of modern-day Turkey there like that. But poor old Nikephorus had to go through hell. To, you know, to, to, <laughs> he ended up with his eyes bloody ripped out, which is no, you know, no fun for anyone. Well, maybe fun for the person who's doing it if you're into that sort of thing. Usually, you know, we, we, don't, we tend not to be too judgmental on half-ass history, but if you're the sort of person who enjoys tearing people's eyes out, probably at least a little bit of judgment coming from this quarter here. Anyway, 
This whole affair is in the rear view now for Irene. She gets on with the business of running the empire, although, you know, this time with her idiot son alongside her like a bloody ball and chain. Constantine VI, he kept causing problems. One of the biggest ones that emerged was known as the Moekian controversy, right? In 795, he divorced his wife and instead married his mistress, a woman named Theodote, who was one of Irene's ladies-in-waiting. He started shagging one of his mum's servants and then all of a sudden made her bloody empress consort by marrying her. Now, people did not like this one bit, especially, as you can imagine, the church, who are, of course, still big fans of Irene after the whole, uh, you know, Second Council of Nicaea there. People saw this as a slippery slope towards legalizing adultery. And it meant that Constantine's popular support, which already wasn't, you know, particularly high, dwindled further and further in the wake of this controversy here. Irene, obviously being the clever political mover and shaker that she was, she sided with the church against her own son and had people really wondering whether this young, you know, idiot horn dog was uh, even necessary to keep around. And this ultimately culminated in 797, with Constantine being one of the most hated men in the city, and Irene finally decided that the time was right to strike and overthrow her own son. She'd organised a plot, she'd organised a conspiracy against him, seeking to depose him, but when he caught wind of this, of course, he attempted to flee the city. But he hadn't even made it to the Bosporus before Irene's people had captured him dragged him back to the palace to receive judgment from his mum. Now, obviously, mums are very good at giving a proper telling off. Most people listening to this podcast would have at one point or another done something you know, to be told off and punished by their mum. But I'll tell you what, Irene was on another level entirely when it comes to the telling off that she gave Constantine. You know, rather than some finger waggling or sending, you know, sending him to his room or taking his Xbox away, Irene had her son's eyes gouged out of his head, and in such a brutal fashion that it's thought that he died from these wounds within days. I mean, look, I remember the punishment I got from my mum when I tore up one of my one of my bloody bananas in pajamas books as a kid. And I mean, that was terrifying enough. But to have your mum gouge your bloody eyes out? Unbelievable. Imagine that. I mean, you know, if you've ever needed a reason to stay on the good side of your mum, just think about Irene and what she got up to with when it came to disciplining her son. Because whew, I, I think we all dodged a bullet or two if that was the sort of you know if that if that's one of the uh, the you know the options that that, that mums have on the table for them. Bloody hell! Anyway, that was it for Constantine. He's you know, he's dead as disco here, and uh, now Irene has nothing and no one in her way when it came to ruling the Byzantine Empire in her own right. And she ruled for a couple of years, but unfortunately her reign as an independent empress was was relatively short. Even after all of the canoodling that she'd done with Rome, they still wouldn't recognise her as a legitimate empress. And so in the year 800, they actually crowned Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor instead, something which increased tensions not just between Constantinople and Rome, but also between the Carolingian and the Byzantine empires. This move did not go over well with the Byzantines either. I mean, never mind the external political struggles and tension, whatever else like that. The Byzantines saw themselves as the true successors of the Roman Empire. having and, and, and having Charlemagne proclaimed as the emperor was a slap in the face to the Byzantines, who, who again, considered themselves to be the sort of spiritual, the natural successors to, the, to, to this enormous Roman Empire. And now all of a sudden, a bloody Frenchman has got the title on his head. Not happy about that. And of course, you can guess who they blame for it. They blamed Irene. And as the papacy, you know, had said that Irene as a woman was unfit for such a position, 
everyone firmly thought that, that it was her fault that she'd you know brought dishonor and, uh, and 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 shame to the empire like this so not even two years after uh, after Charlemagne's you know ascent to uh, to Holy Roman Empire Emperor here Irene's time as the Empress of the Byzantines it came to an end in the year 802 she was deposed by Byzantine patricians who replaced her instead with the Byzantine Minister of Finance, of all things, and you'll never guess what his name was. It was, of course, as you probably already figured out, Nikephorus. Twist ending. Didn't expect that one, did you? Obviously, not the blinded and exiled Nikephorus, different different bloke entirely. Incidentally, this Nikephorus, he died while fighting the Bulgars later on, and the Bulgar leader, whose name was Crum the Fearsome, which is pretty good, uh, Crum the Fearsome apparently had Nikephorus decapitated and turned his skull into a drinking cup. So I think Crum the Fearsome was indeed very, very well-named indeed. Anyway, the eventual fate of Irene was much quieter, unlike so many of the other people that she had dealt with throughout her political career, unlike so many of the other you know, Byzantine emperors and empresses who had been successfully overthrown. She actually was able to live out the the rest of her life, as short as it was, in, in relative peace and obscurity. She wasn't blinded, she wasn't disfigured, she wasn't even tonsured. She was just exiled. She was exiled to the Greek island of Lesbos. And she spent the rest of her life there spinning wool. And Irene of Athens, she finally died in 803 after a life spent fighting for power, a fight that was made a lot harder for her than it would have been for many others because of her gender. But with all the political wheeling and dealing, with all the conspiracies and plots, the tonsuring and the eye gouging, in addition to all the boring stuff, you know, about religious reforms, Irene proved herself as a clever, unyielding, and worthy leader, even if she did, you know, gouge her own son's eyes out. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Irene of Athens, who rose all the way to become the empress of the Byzantine Empire. And what a li- what a life she lived, indeed. I mean. A lot of bloody eye gouging. Well, a little more eye gouging than was perhaps strictly necessary, but you know what? We'll still give it to her. Anyway, thank you again to Stanislav for sending in this as a topic suggestion. If you want to do the same thing, of course, we're going to do all the boring housekeeping stuff here. Head over to halfasthistory.net. You'll find all the uh, all the you know old episodes there as well as a contact form where you can send through any topic suggestions. I've got a big, long list of them. But, I mean, Stanislav sent this one in months ago, and I've only just finally got to it as well. So do send in suggestions. If I don't get back to you, rest assured it is on the list, and I'll, you know, I'll have a good old read of it um and thank you to the people who get in touch with feedback or questions or anything else there like that it's always good to hear from people i'm sorry i don't reply to all the emails i do my best but the sheer volume of it sometimes you know it gets a little tricky there like that special thanks go also to the people who are uh, 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 supporting the show on patreon there's a, a huge number of people who are chucking me money hand over fist every month for this show and they they, they make it well, I mean, I'd probably still do it without them, but they make me a lot happier to do it every week, to be honest. So thank you so much to all the people supporting the show. We've got a couple of new executive producers, of course, as well. And uh, thank you to those people. The, 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 you know, the, the, the most favourite of my favourite kinds of listeners there like that. Um, if you want to buy some Half-Ass History swag, you can do that. BigCartel.HalfAssHistory.com or is it HalfAssHistory.BigCartel.com or is it BigCartel.com slash Half-Ass History. Just type all of those into Google. I'm sure, you'll, uh, I'm sure you'll find your way there. Free shipping on all orders, of course. If you want a T-shirt or, or a notebook or anything else like that, you can, uh, you can jump over there and I'll send it to you uh, as quick as I can. Um, but I think that's it. What have I forgotten to say? 
Anything else? I think that's about it. I don't know. I can't all the all the I can't remember all the housekeeping stuff anyway. But so if there's anything I've forgotten, well, whatever. Just go and listen to all the all the housekeeping things are the same anyway, aren't they? So whatever. Anyway, we're done for another week. Uh, this question we got a we got a question to to close out the show. This one not posed on Reddit. No, no, no. This one posed, of course, by one of the greatest bands of all time. My, one of my favorite bands, I would say, if not my absolute favorite band of all time. They might be giants. Now, of course, we all know that it's nobody's business but the Turks. But why is it? Why did Constantinople get the works? <laughs>